1: Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Omar Khan. Omar was on uh, episode GI7, so you can go back and take a look, but he is back. And Omar is responsible for capital raising, strategic planning, and investor relations at his firm, Boardwalk Wealth. He has over 10 years of global investment experience and has participated in capital financing and M&A transactions valued at $3.7 billion. So thank you so much for coming back to the show, Omar.
0: Thanks, Charles. I feel like an OG showing up. (laughs) And today, if I pace around, the reason is that I got this... I mean, I've had the standing desk forever and I never use it. And this week I told myself, you know what, Stuart, I'm going to do it. So I just... I'm getting used to the standing in one spot, which is very hard for me. So I got to move a little bit just to, you know, kind of make sure that I don't like my knees and my hips don't like kill me. By okay. The
1: uh So Omar, just give us a quick background on yourself, uh, both personally and professionally prior to getting into real estate investing with Boardwalk Wealth.
0: Look, background was uh, like a lot of folks, you know, my family is an entrepreneurial family. So, you know, um, uh, you see the ebbs and flows, right? So we're three or four generations of entrepreneurs. You see the, the, by the ebbs and flows, I mean, you understand, you know, there's going to be good times and during good times, you have to diligently save and invest your money because invariably there's going to be bad times, right? And you, in our case, we eat what we kill. So whether that's good or bad, (laughs) it is what it is, right? So having that experience really helped or understanding that framework, because it's nothing, it's not like, you know, your parents sit down and say, okay, you know, we have a business. Nobody says that right? But it's, it's just learning by observing, right? Observing good habits, good people, being around them, learning all of that. Go to college, did my finance and accounting, uh, did my CFA a bit after college, worked in the institutional side, ran deals, structured deals, upside down, not only just buying, but also, also selling them, operating them, which I now realize is somewhat less people do it, right? Because again, that was partly me looking for that experience and partly finding the right mentors and the right opportunities, right? Right. Because I wanted to understand the entire deal spectrum because a lot of say investment bankers are sell side. They'll sell you the deal. They don't really care about operating because that's just not what their job is, right? right? And buy side people will, might buy and operate, but they might not be good at say the, preparing your books to sale. So when you understand that spectrum, it really helps. Then I moved to the U S from Canada, uh, 2015, 2016, sometime in that timeframe, uh, between my wife and I, we were doing, I mean, we were doing okay. My wife's a physician, but what we realized was that, uh, our tax situation, I mean, we were paying a mountain of money in taxes every year and we're like, okay, we're 30, 31, maybe at the time. Uh, so Hey, it's a good problem. We're paying a lot of money in taxes. This means we're actually making money, right? It's a good problem to have. But the bad point about this is that if you don't do something about it now, and you know, assuming, you know, the average income, life, white-collar professional trajectory keeps slowly making more and more and more money through your career, right? So we gotta tackle this problem right now. Luckily for me, had a really good professional network, personal network. Families in this business for a little while, so I started running and structuring my own deals. But I couldn't have done and run and structured my own deals if I didn't have the ten plus years of experience before that, with institutions, having great mentors, all that stuff professionally, right? And when I mean mentors, I don't mean some paid mentor online. I mean like an actual person you're working with at a really good, uh, say, uh, company that you work for. They're doing really well, and you learn from those people, right? So. Having that experience, started running and structuring deals, and then you know just putting one foot after the other. Charles, you know you're a partner of ours. We're so lucky to have you. Uh, a lot of this isn't like some uh, uh, brilliant leap of logic or insight. I'm not like we're Elon Musk here, right? But a lot of times it's just doing the small little fundamental things day in and day out for years mm-hmm. on end.
1: Yeah, consistency, definitely yeah. doing the right things right, uh, consistently. Um, so let's talk about Boardwalk Wealth. What is your, just so people understand what your kind of investment strategy is and criteria is for investing. What are you looking for? What have you invested in before? I know you guys are doing development and acquisitions in multifamily.
0: So look, uh, we are primarily an opportunistic buyer or developer, by the way, because we develop and acquire. That's always been the case. I did the math a long time ago. Uh, that I mean, I could be a programmatic buyer, uh, which is, you know, you buy every month, assuming you have the money, and you some deals are good, some deals are bad, and you will kind of even it out, right? Uh, I didn't want to be in that game because I'm an opportunistic and value add sort of person. I have to buy when there's just stress and money because I did the math a long time ago and I realized for every three, four okay deals I do, I just have to do one good deal and I make the same amount of money for our investors and for ourselves. So why be on that hamster wheel of just trying to do more when you can do less and actually end up making more money? Because let's be honest, A big reason why we're doing this, at least for me, is not because I have some deep love for real estate. It's because, look, it's a very lucrative way to increase your net worth, provide for your family, provide for your investors, provide for your partners, make sure they take care of their families and their commitments in their communities. It's a very good investment, right? So that's why we're doing it. So why not aim for basically doing, just being more efficient, Right? So we, we've we done all of that. What we also have is a private equity arm. So I've invested in a couple of private businesses, a fitness equipment business in Toronto. We're launching a restaurant business with a really capable and senior experienced team. Uh, they're actually some of my investors and then the conversation started. So we're launching that. But the whole point is to have it as a platform to which you know, we do our own family's investments and our investors and partners can also, if they want choose to participate in those investments.
1: Nice. Hey, so- Omar, you're on a lot of the underwriting side of it. You're also working raising money from investors. Um, But uh, when you're analyzing a deal, what are some of the main factors you place the most weight on when underwriting? Because there's so many different factors. You're looking through a 12 tab spreadsheet. What are the things maybe you look at initially or maybe the things that uh, make or break a deal, I guess, or red flags, you know what I mean?
0: First of all, it's got to be in the markets and sub-markets that we want to be in, right? So for instance, that doesn't mean that there are not good deals in other sub-markets. There's lots of really good deals in other sub-markets and markets, by the way, across the country. It's just that we have to be very efficient in our usage of time, right? So we have to pick and choose, okay, here, I've got some sort of an edge either. I've got people, I've got relationships, or I've got a team here. Right. So we can really crank out every last dollar from this asset. Right. So, number one, and it's hard to do this, man, because I often fall prey to not doing this and then I have to keep bringing myself back. Right. That just focusing on a little sandbox in certain areas. Number one. That's very important. Now, how do you select those areas? Lots of factors. You look at demographics, you look at say the path of progress, Are is this in the market you want to be in, or you don't want to be in? What is a buyer? What is the liquidity pool in that market? So there's lots of factors that go in, but picking a sandbox and playing within that sandbox, even though you're going to have the shiny object and people throwing attractive, seemingly attractive deals in other markets, right? So kind of being very disciplined that way. Number one. Number two, basically developing, and this is an ongoing evolving process because I don't think you can ever get, you can never really get to the pinnacle. You're always getting better at this. Continuing to develop a team. Mm-hmm. Right Now, this doesn't mean that nobody leaves your team. People leave because sometimes you got to go up and the people that got you here won't get you there. Right, So I mean, staying in touch with people, developing that team, because a lot of times speed and efficiency is what's my bread and butter versus say somebody who might have a $2 billion, but they have like a lot of bureaucracy, right? So it might take them say two months to make a deal and I can make a deal in a week, right? Mm. And oftentimes people want that because when they're in trouble, they want it right now. They want relief right now, right? But if they want relief right now, there's a price for that. Right. So as long as everybody's reasonable, everybody's professional, you can figure it out. So team uh, playing a little sandbox and then realizing that what you can't do is have orphan deals out everywhere. You have to be in a couple of markets or regions. It doesn't have to be just one market. It could be a region. And you want to want to scale in those regions. Because if you're doing, say, just one deal in Florida, one deal in Texas, one deal in Georgia, one deal in New York, one deal in California, your cost structure is just going to be out of whack.
1: It's going to be too crazy for doing asset management. And then also, you're not going to be getting any deals on property management with your regional managers because they're, oh, we're not there. So you got to get another one there. I got to get another one here. You know what I mean? So it's just, you can't scale that. I, I totally, totally agree with that uh, sense. So when you're raising a lot of money and you work a lot with institutional and sophisticated capital, and this is very interesting because I think a retail investor that maybe is new isn't going to know maybe what a high net worth individual is really looking for. So what would you say are some of the most important deal points that sophisticated capital is focused on when reviewing review, a deal? You know, like say you send it to them if they're passive That's, investors, let's say.
0: I'm going to be honest with you. That's a very good question. And I'm going to I'm going to answer that question, but you might not get the answer that you think you're going to get. Look, the deal is merely the byproduct of your relationship. Okay? So as I explain to people, look, money, the actual physical act of money exchange, you can't you, I invest in your deal. So I say, whatever, take my million dollars, I give it to you, because I trust you, right? Yeah, money always exchanges hands in the end. A lot of times, people want to talk about money right up front, right? There's a lot of variables that go into this, right? So first of all, you have to develop a relationship, because think about it this way. If somebody only calls you when they need your money, of a weird relationship, right? Right. It's not going to work. So number one, focus on the relationship. Understand that sometimes some relationships take a month, some relationships take years. So focus on developing the relationship. Don't focus on pounding the merits of your deal or you or whatever, right? Develop that relationship because when you have that relationship, you have that trust built in, you're not going to have a lot of questions. Okay. Nobody's going to like hammer you down for every last second decimal point answer. So I know it doesn't directly answer your question, but I can tell you this, that most affluent individuals, contrary to what you might have heard or people here, they're looking for trustworthiness as opposed to, hey, is this person going to get me the absolute best return known to humanity yeah. ever? Because... A lot of folks like myself, like yourself, we're short on time, man. I'm always, always, always optimizing for the relationship. And I'm optimizing for trustworthiness and competence. Because the fact of the matter is, if somebody is, say, for instance, extremely competent, right? They're really good at what they do, but they're a crook. That's not a good use, right? I don't want to be in that deal because they're just going to take my money and run away. Or conversely, somebody uh, could be very honest, greatest character in the world, but they're a complete idiot. They don't know what to do. That's also not a good we right? Because I'm not like this is not a charitable exchange that's happening here, right? So you have to focus on again. This is not there's no 16-point checklist. You don't have this in an Excel model, right? You have to focus on basically, you understand your counterparty typically is assessing you on your character or what they feel are your is their version of your character, right? And then your competence and how do you present yourself. So Don't do these fly by night shady things. A lot of people do where it's like cheesy marketing and all of this sort of stuff. Because yeah, you might get one or two people. Trust me, most of those people are going to be broke.
1: Yeah. So it's really investing as what I've kind of what I found is that with sophisticated capital, they're investing and focusing more on the sponsor and the general partners than they are on the specific deal. And you know, if a deal because I, I know from first-hand experience, my father one time, years back, decades back, lost money in non-real estate syndication. And he invested again with them, something that lasted dozens of years. So yes. he was investing in the sponsor, lost money, uh, believed in what they're doing. They did another deal, made yeah. money. And you know what I mean? So it's just- and look.
0: I just want to emphasize this. Your father took a very mature approach because people somehow feel that just because somebody's got a good track record, they can never lose money. Okay. Nobody's a magician, guys. Okay. What people can't promise you an outcome, what good quality quality individuals and companies can offer you is a process. Hey, we're going to do this process because you've got to realize you can do everything right in life. And by the way, this is not just in business, just generally in life. We can do everything right in life and have a bad outcome. Conversely, we could do everything wrong in life and have a good outcome right? So think about it this way. You could really take care of your health. You could be in shape. I'm not in shape. I don't know why I did that, right? You could be really good shape. You could really eat healthy, take really good care of yourself, and you could be 40 and die of a heart attack, right? Conversely, somebody could be smoking cigarettes, alcoholic, being drugs, and they live to 90, right? How's that fair? So you got to focus on the process, not the outcome, which is very hard if you've lost money, and your father did something very mature, some astute investor does, that he looked at hey, what's the bigger picture here?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it's exactly correct. So I want to kind of dive more into what's going on here in the economy and you know there's a rental housing storage in the US and I read recently that the US needs 328,000 new apartments per year to meet demand and we've only hit that three times since 1989. So what are your thoughts on the lack of rental housing coupled with rising interest rates that we've seen this year, and are borrowers with a variable rate debt in for an awakening.
0: Uh, yes and no. It depends. Number one, Our, is the biggest thing is interest rate debts with variable rate debt. Are these borrowers going to get killed? The short answer is it depends because number one, how much meat is on the bone? A lot of these borrowers were buying deals that were either thinly capitalized. So, for instance, they didn't have adequate. First of all, the deal wasn't really that good to begin with, and on top of that, they were cutting corners. They were either very really highly leveraged, they didn't have enough cash reserves on the book, and they suck at operations. Right. So, if you have that confluence of events, yeah it's going to be a pain in the ass there's just no, there's no way around it but that's because you went looking for trouble right but there's lots of borrowers for instance who have floating rate debt that are just going to be fine because they the cash the internal cash flow is enough to weather the storm they probably have adequate liquidity reserves they have probably have a rate cap which mitigates their upside exposure to interest rates so they can weather the storm Also, right now, what we're seeing across our portfolio and a couple of the other guys that I've talked to is that you have a negative of rising interest rates. So your debt service costs go up, but our underlying revenue, like the rental rates and all of that, they are going up at a much higher pace. So one is a negative of interest rates that's buffeted or offset or matched by the uptick in revenue right now, as an example. The other thing also is you've got to realize when people who are, say, living in these B, C and even A-class apartments... They, if they would leave, they would either go typically to another apartment or they'd go buy a house. Well, the house buying equation is kind of out of the picture because these are price sensitive consumers and the mortgage rates have skyrocketed. I mean, I was reading somewhere between, I think, January of this year and May or June, the average mortgage in America. So take it for what it's worth. The cost of servicing their debt has gone up by something like 35, 40%. That's a lot because mortgages typically are the biggest expenses a house has on their household. Right, So if you have a price-sensitive customer, your mortgages have gone up by 35 40%, just the monthly cost, the monthly nut to cover this, then those people are not leaving these apartments to at least go buy houses. So if they're staying put, you already have an affordable housing crisis of sorts, especially in the markets where we're in, then what you have is supply is an issue, because I mean, frankly, you just can't go create a 70s, 80s, 90s vintage product like, like that today, or ever, for instance, you can't go back in time. And basically, you have these people that demand keeps pushing up because they're not going to house and stuff. So depends on the sponsor, depends on the deal. It also depends how much juice was in the deal and how many corners a sponsor was cutting or not cutting. That's why you'll see a lot of people cut distribution and then blame the market. Uh, they'll have this and they'll blame the market. Every single thing they'll blame the market, but they never blame the market when the market went up 20% and they were you know, making more money because then it's all them. Yeah. We did this, but when it goes down, the market did this to us.
1: Yeah. Uh, so Omar, one thing we've really not spoken about much here on the show is uh, talking about bridge loans and how bridge debt has kind of overtaken Fannie and Freddie because Mm -hmm. bridge debt is more opportunistic, let's say, funding uh, compared to Fannie and Freddie. Can you explain how a bridge loan works with rate caps and can you explain that process um, because you've done it so many times?
0: Yeah. So look, a bridge debt, look, you have got to realize um, it says it in the word, a bridge debt. It's a bridge to something, either stability, Mm -hmm. sale, whatever you want to call it, or a refinance. Right? So just realize, it literally says it in the word, a bridge to something. right? Now, typically in the past, not including the last 10, 10, 20 years, bridge debt was used when you're acquiring a distressed mismanaged asset. Maybe there's some element of deferred maintenance there. Right? You got to fix it, get it to a stabilized condition, bam, then you can refi because your value has gone up. Because of the run-up in values, What we were now seeing is a lot of people if they went to the agencies which is considered permanent debt right or banks banks are just totally not in the picture right now for bigger multifamily. Uh, the LTVs they were getting were like 50 55 45 and if you get that sort of LTV yeah you can beat your chest and say oh my god I'm so conservative but it's just not gonna work like why would you invest in a deal with 45 percent LTV because your cash on cash is going to be zero and you might make like seven percent on your money so what's the point The whole point of investing in real estate is you get good loans and you can kind of manage that process, right? So that was a big issue. But what's also happened is to see, to fill this demand, a lot of funds, private capital, private credit rose up to match this debt. A good portion of this reason is that after 2008, a lot of the banks, uh, just because of their shenanigans, a lot of regulations was put on them. They couldn't loan, they couldn't do this, certain products, certain types. So a lot of constraints were put in the demand is still there. You have to understand people still want to buy real estate. Now they have to find avenues on which to get financed. So now you have private credit bridge funds, private credit funds, hedge funds, raising money, say, at say 1%, lending it at say four and a half five percent keeping the spread and making that money. So if you think about it, you kind of locked in a riskless 4% spread if you Lent at five and borrowed at one, number one, like a bank. But what you've also done is you have the option there that if somebody defaults on your loan, right? You can just take over the property and all you've done is you're not buying it at 100%. You're buying it at 75% of the value. So that's the recourse there, right? So the reason why bridge debt is very popular is because they ask a lot less questions. They typically in the past, we'll see what happens now, they've been able to offer a lot higher leverage at much, much, much better interest rates also than banks and agency debt at times. So that's why you have this combination of somebody giving your loan more money, somebody giving you better terms, they're not a pain in the ass to deal with, typically, not always, right? why wouldn't you go to that person? Every single thing is pointing towards you going to that person. But the catch there is that that loan is typically three or five years. So you better have a business plan in a market where you come in, you do your work, you sell. This is why you're seeing a lot of syndicators, typically in the past, they would hoard for five, six, seven years, they hoard for one year and sell. The problem there for you as an investor is, is typically, not always, typically somebody sells in one year, their IRR number looks very good. So they again, they can go on social media, beat their chest, say, look at me, how great am I? My IRR is so good. The problem is they've left a lot of money on the table. And you as an investor at the end of the day, aren't going to eat IRR. You're going to eat with the dollars that your money generates because... At least so far, that's how we buy things, right? So if if a sponsor shows you a very high IRR, your equity multiple isn't really that high. Well, how's that intelligent? right? Because at the end of the day, you got to make money, right? So there's little games being played. I don't necessarily think bridge debt is good or bad. Again, it's like the question you asked about floating rate debt, what are deals and sponsors going to be? It is all very case by case. This is why when you partner with experienced people like ourselves, with Charles, who've been through the block, they understand the deal mechanics, they've got good networks so they can leverage those networks to get advice on the ground. That's why you don't get burned and you hear all these other guys getting burned all the time.
1: So with the with uh, with bridge debt, it's usually fixed for three years, and then you'll have. It's not two... fixed. No, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, hold on. The term is fixed Explain. for three Explain. years.
0: Yeah. The term, which is the three-year term, might be fixed mm-hmm. for three years. Your rate typically is still floating, so you'll have a reference rate, like say mm-hmm. LIBOR or SOFR, mm-hmm. because that's just it's like the U.S. Treasury, right? That's a reference rate. Plus, you will have a spread on top. The spread is to account for the risk of the project. So let's assume you had a classic core project fifth avenue new york right that's a lot less risky because if again if the lender has to take over the property it's pretty easy to sell a property on fifth avenue right versus powell mississippi right so that spread that you see on the top that spread goes up and down depending on the lender's version of the risk of the project
1: mm. okay all right. Thank you very much for explaining that to our listeners. Um, so kind of as we're, we're finishing up here, Omar, I had a couple uh, just follow up here uh, with common mistakes you might see if you've ever reviewed other underwriting from other real estate investors or just being in the business for so many years. Uh, what are common mistakes that you see other real estate investors making?
0: Uh, look, some of the stuff is not having adequate cash reserves, right? Everybody thinks that mm-hmm. the world is only going to go up uh, or they are the best things in sliced bread, so that always helps, right? So having adequate cash reserves, uh, investing without an exit plan. So a lot of guys get into loans where it's very easy to get in, but on the exit, there's big penalties, Right. People don't really know about it. That's lack of sophistication. And just realizing that today, these days, you can't just be a, say, a good real estate sponsor. You have to have a good team that understands the various aspects. You need to be understand capital markets. How do you get loans? How are they priced? What happens? You need. To be a good real estate person in terms of acquisitions. You need a good team in terms of operations. You need a good team in terms of P&L accounting and all of that sort of stuff so you can prepare your books to sell. And there's a lot of these things that you need. And it's not like 25 years ago where all you kind of had to do was show up. And if you were kind of good at one process, it'd be okay. Now you have to hit it from multiple angles. And if you don't hit it from multiple angles, you don't have a level of sophistication, people are going to eat you for lunch.
1: A lot more competitive now than it was. Yeah, but look, I am.
0: but look, there's some positives here as well, right? You can also make a lot more money. It's easier to raise money <laughs> through social media and other channels. So there's good and bad, right? I mean, it is what it is. We can't go back in time. We can only go forward.
1: Right, right. So what do you think are the main factors for you, Omar, that have contributed to your success over your working lifetime?
0: Well, number one, working in really good firms leading up to basically starting my own firm, because mm-hmm. then you're able to work with professionals who've been around the block. You cannot just see how they're doing the work, but what they are doing, how, mm-hmm. what are they thinking about, how do they respond or react to certain events, bad or good, by the way right? So you, you learn a lot of times you learn by observation, right? And then you pick up on work ethic and work habits and ways to present yourself, right? So that I think has been very important. And part of that is luck. And part of that is hard work. So you can't say it's all hard work, right? Uh, the other thing is I'm very lucky. i have a set of very good parents, very good family. So that's really contributed to me. And lastly, uh, you know, uh, I just like to, uh, I'm just a curious type of person, man. I just like to know things that are going on in the world, keep abreast of things. Now, a lot of times that helps you provide mental models and frameworks. Just because you're doing real estate doesn't mean some guy doing something, some other business somewhere else, wherever that is, right? Uh, you can't like learn from that person. You can't pick up good pointers from that person because look, we might be doing real estate, but some guy running a business might have a really good sales team. Well, a sales team could be applied in any business, as an example, right? Or they might have a really good accounting team. That could be picked and applied in. So learning by observing, having a good network, all of these things are linked to each other.
1: Oh, great. Uh, so Omar, how can our listeners learn more about you and Boardwalk Wealth?
0: Well, you can go to our website, boardwalkwealth.com. Right on the website, there should be an email opt-in page. I think it's on the right side. Put your name, email, and how you found out about us. You'll be added to the mailing list. You'll get an email. Mm-hmm. Click on it to verify yourself. And from there on in, please reach out if you have any questions. Every year, we do a whole bunch of deals and development acquisition and some other private equity deals. Happy to chat, even if it's not my own deal.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, being on today. And I will look forward to touching base with you sometime here in the near future.
0: Yes, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Talk soon. Have,
1: have a great rest of your day. Bye for now. Bye. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars LLC exclusively.